Welcome to the Building Science Podcast. 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 Bringing the human factor to architecture and design. Brought to you by Positive Energy in Austin, Texas. Okay, hello everybody. Hello and welcome back to the Building Science Podcast. Really glad to have you here. As always, or as typical, we have uh, my good friend, sidekick, Miguel. Hello, Miguel. Fully vaccinated, Miguel, and he's ready to hug people again. All right. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, uh, I'm getting close to that way. So we are going to be talking about health today. Speaking of your health, we're going to be talking about chemical exposures in the built environment and one specific chemical that happens to have the distinction of being immortal or nearly so. And we're going to set this up kind of hierarchically. We're going to move through it. But first, we're going to introduce our speaker. Our speaker is Dr. Tom Bruton today. He's with the Green Science Policy Institute. Please say hello, Tom, and uh, maybe elaborate a little on that introduction. Sure. Hi, Christoph. Hi, Miguel. Uh, it's good to be here today with you. I'm Tom Bruton with the Green Science Policy Institute. We are a small NGO based out of Berkeley, California, and we uh, do everything that we can to try and reduce the use of harmful chemicals in building products. Uh, We're we're mainly scientists, and so that's the lens that we come at this. Uh, I'm trained as an environmental engineer and an environmental chemist, and so I've spent a long time studying uh, harmful chemicals, how they get out into the environment, how they move around and how we can remove them, how we can treat them. Yeah, yeah. So those of you that have not already gone to sixclasses.org, that's S-I-X, and the word classes.org, stop right now and go there. Truly tremendous. They've done an amazing magic trick of packaging six, no, no, seven, like about four-minute videos that goes right into your head, informs you, And it helps you understand the magnitude of what we're talking about here. We are, in fact, living in the chemical age. And um, many of the the guinea pigs that are being used in this giant experiment are me and you. And that's that's what Dr. Bruton is kind of unearthing. I'm going to call you Tom. Sure. Please do. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, And thank you for making the pitch for six classes, though. You did it. You did it very well. Oh, yeah. Well, then you'll love this. So uh, um, Arlene Bloom is like one of my personal heroes, right? This... The um, undaunted courage she has in the face of disheartenment and overwhelm, uh, and frankly, the successes y- you guys have had. So, like, major high five to uh, Green Science Policy Institute. And so, actually, if we could start there, if you don't mind, and I don't know how well you've been versed in how to introduce Green Science Policy Institute, but how long has it been around, and basically, what's it about? What's it? Yeah, I'm, I'm game for that question. So, okay, good. Green Science Policy Institute was founded in 2008 when our executive director, Arlene, who you mentioned, found out that the the same toxic flame retardants that her research had helped get out of children's pajamas way back in the 1970s, uh, she found out that those chemicals were used in the furniture in everyone's houses and were in the dust in everyone's houses and in our bodies. And when she, she found this out, she started uh, the organization to try and pull together science showing the harm of those chemicals, pull together science showing that they actually were not providing a fire safety benefit the way they were being used, and to think about and, and change the policies. It was actually government policy that was driving the use of those chemicals. And so we've been working ever since. Yeah, so I read, um, I think maybe the, one of the first places I heard about it, you all was uh, through uh, the Chicago Tribune had an article called Playing with Fire. It was a multi-part series, really profound, really uh, inflaming, ha ha ha, (laughs) if you get the pun. But um, fundamentally, there's adult human beings in this country who are willing to lie under oath on stands, I mean, in courtrooms, and say, oh, yeah, no, there's this baby, and if it wasn't for the flame retardants, they would have been alive. And just incredible, incredible. Yeah, I think Arlene had no idea what she was stepping into when she started this work looking into the the flammability standards for furniture and and how much money uh, was behind, you know, the companies and the the efforts to put those chemicals there and to to write the standards in the way that required them. Yeah, 
Yeah. And, and I speak about the undaunted courage because fundamentally she, um, Arlene back in the, was it the seventies when she got it out of pajamas or the eighties? The seventies. Yeah. Late seventies. Yeah. And so she basically said like, Hey, this is a mess. We won't, we don't want our kids exposed to it. And what happened? Political leadership said, you're right. This is a mess. Let's deal with it. And then, of co- you know, not of course, but I don't want to sound cynical. Industry responded by saying, okay, we'll take out that nasty chemical and put in this nasty chemical. So then she had to show, well, actually, that's actually also a nasty chemical, also getting into your children's blood. And finally, that was banned. And then, you know, here we are forward years later. And it's like many people believe, um, and I got to tell you, I, I can really go there, that like this is an intractable issue, right? That these chemicals are, in fact, ubiquitous. Um, the exposures are all around us all the time. Wow. Yeah. So that, that's it's, getting a little meta. Yeah, please. It's easy to go there. I, I'll admit it. But the, the way that we've come up with uh, for getting around that is this idea of thinking about chemical classes rather than individual chemicals. Yeah. So if you, if you look at the number of individual chemicals that are, that are on the market, you just get overwhelmed. There are some people say there are 80,000 chemicals in commerce. Most of them haven't been tested adequately for health and safety. EPA doesn't have much data on them. They don't have power to get much data on them. Uh, and it takes a long time for scientists to, to do that research, for academic scientists to do it, for it to make its way out into to regulators and to environmental advocates, and for change to actually happen. And so for that process to play out one chemical at a time, um, for all of those tens of thousands of chemicals that, uh, that are being used and we're exposed to, it's just not going to work. It's not protecting public health. And so our idea is that when you can, you should think about classes of chemicals. Uh, so if, if you find out that one flame retardant is harmful, don't just switch to another flame retardant that you don't know much about. Just look at the chemical structures and you can see that uh, chemicals with similar properties often turn out to have similar harm. And so just avoid flame retardants in general. Mm-hmm. Ask the question, do we really need a flame retardant here? And often we found that the answer is no. They're, they're just not providing a function. So there's no use in, in going through this cycle of chemical whack-a-mole. Yeah, chemical whack-a-mole. Yeah. So absolutely there is hope. Um, and it's us, right? It's not just us on this uh, podcast. It's you all listening, right? We are the people. We are the aspect of our society that has agency in these decisions and can influence. So, yeah, that, that's why we're talking about this today. So Green Science Policy Institute has a new report out. I haven't seen it yet, but the title just makes me happy. Building a Better World, which uh, is obviously why it's on the Building Science podcast. And then the subtitle is Eliminating Unnecessary PFAS from Building Materials. So that's where we're going today. Let's talk about PFAS. First of all, it's four letters, P-F-A-S. And Tom, it stands for, but um bum Perfluoroalkyl and polyfluoroalkyl substances. A mouthful. Poly, yeah. Polyflu- <laughs> that's why we use acronyms sometimes. Yeah. And, and please. there are actually other acronyms that you might see to refer to the same thing. PFCs is one that, that people used to use. Fluorocarbons is another thing. But mm-hmm. PFAS, that's how we like to say it. PFOA is another one? PFOA is one particular type of a PFAS. Mm-hmm. So there are... Um, latest count is something like 9,000 different individual PFAS that are out there. It's, it's a family of chemicals. Got it. So when it comes to this class of chemicals, PFAS, they exist for reasons uh, one would like to hope. And uh, the reasons are they, they can do things. They can do things that are, are hard to achieve with other uh, means. What do they do and where are they used? You're right. They are really useful. And for that reason, we find them in all kinds of products. Uh, they make things nonstick. They make things waterproof, greaseproof, mm. stainproof. So um, you used to find them in all of the carpet and lots of other textiles, clothing to make them stainproof. You find them in nonstick cookware, frying pans, um, firefighting foam that's used uh, to put out oil fires is a, has been a big source of PFAS contamination in the environment. Hmm. So they're extremely uh, like water repellent, stain repellent. How do they pull that off? Like 
at a chemical level, like they're just so tight to themselves, nothing can get in and they repel everything? Like what happens? Yeah, so the thing that makes this a family of chemicals is that they all have this uh, this shared trait of being chains of carbon atoms and attached to those carbon atoms are fluorine atoms. So they're, they're fluorinated organic chemicals. And those fluorines are what give them all of these really interesting chemical properties that make them so useful. They're also the thing that makes them super persistent in the environment, which you know leads to them being problematic. Yeah, yeah. I use the you know uh, like inaccurate term immortal. They're obviously not immortal. How long will they persist in an, in an environment like an outdoor environment? Do we have a sense of that? You know, they persist so long that it's difficult to measure how long they'll persist because they go away so slowly. <laughs> wow! Credible scientists call these forever chemicals and say that they'll they'll last for geologic time holy moly it's like radio waves in space (laughs) wow yeah i remember reading in preparation for this that um near cape fear in north carolina the uh rainwater falling off of tree leaves is contaminated with pfas chemicals um and obviously well the presumption is it's not contaminated coming out of the cloud and that the tree leaves have pulled it up out of the soil. Well, it could be that, but it's also coming out of the cloud, I'm afraid. Oh, North Carolina. Oh, Tom. Yeah. So how, does it, how does it get into the clouds? <laughs> well, there's a big PFAS production factory there uh, on the Cape Fear River in North Carolina. And a lot of PFAS has gone out the smokestacks and into the air. And it, it oh. moves out around that area and settles down all across the land. So onto the trees, onto agricultural fields. And you're right, when it rains... The rain coming out of the cloud may be relatively clean, but it'll hit that tree leaf and pick up the PFAS and then take it down into the environment. Mm. Mm. So taking it into the environment means taking, and, and you just mentioned it's in um, on, on agricultural fields. So when we measure, when we measure PFAS in people's, I mean, how do we, do we measure it in people? Are we finding PFAS inside people's blood? We do, yeah. The CDC measures it in people's blood and finds it in 99% of samples. So it's, wow. it's in all of us, um, uh-huh. different types of PFAS. And they measure it in, in blood. So it's, it's circulating through our bodies and our blood. And our bodies can eliminate it? Our bodies can eliminate it, yes. But the, the trick is that some of the PFAS are eliminated quite slowly. And so that if you're bringing PFAS in through your drinking water, through your food, through your air, whatever it can be coming in faster than it's going out. And so it can build up to levels that can cause health effects. Mm-hmm. Are these health effects things that we would notice right away and go, oh, that's a PFAS hangover I got? Or I mean, <laughs> how, how would you know if you've been exposed to PFAS? Would it be some symptom that's indicative of it? Generally, these, these chemicals are not causing um, acute health effects at the, the types of environmental exposures we're talking about. But large epidemiological studies have found links between exposure to uh, to some of the PFAS and chronic health conditions like two types of cancer, liver mm. disease, thyroid disease, immune system problems, things like that. Yeah. Yeah. And it's easy to put, you know, especially if there's large studies to just say, look at this data and forget, look at this data about these lives that are absolutely changed by um, the way we're treating our environment and the way we're treating chemical exposures. Um, so let's get into the report and then uh, we can talk generally about in chemical exposures maybe when we get toward the end here. So just thinking about the nuts and bolts of putting together a big report and a big research project like this, building a, a better world. How did that start? How did you pick this as a topic and how did it get, um, I guess, funded? How did you, how did you end up working on this? Sure. Well, We're interested in building materials because um, of our work with flame retardants in the past. And we knew that chemicals like flame retardants can migrate out of building materials. They're they're not just um, fixed in the insulation in the wall or in the the foam in your couch. They can come out and get in dust and result in in harmful exposures. We're also really interested in PFAS. I've been working on PFAS for about 10 years now in grad school before I joined Green Science Policy. Mm -hmm. And... um, we knew from looking at industry literature from the PFAS industry that uh, these chemicals are used in all kinds of building products. There's a lot of growing awareness around PFAS among policymakers um, in this uh, around the uh, the problem of drinking water contamination, 
And there's there's been a good amount of publicity around PFAS in food packaging, yeah. firefighting foam, some of these uses. But we looked at it and didn't see a lot of awareness of PFAS in the building industry. And there is so much good work going on in the, the building industry around optimizing material health and chemicals and building products. There's there's a lot of um, there's a lot of positive energy, if if you will, <laughs> around that, and we wanted to hook up that positive energy to work on PFAS, uh, basically. Right, kind of keep the momentum going and build it. Yeah, yeah, to to keep the momentum going and get all of the building energies. Mm-hmm. And so you were one of the researchers on this report. Yeah, I was one of the researchers on this along with a couple colleagues of mine, and we uh, culled through a lot of company websites, patents scientific papers, governmental reports, anything else that we could get our hands on um, to find out, to find instances of where PFAS are used for, for certain functions and certain building products. And we, we found evidence that they're used a lot more places than has been commonly talked about, I'd say. Hmm. So where, where, what are the big uses in building products? Uh, a big use is in coatings for all kinds of things. Uh, like, metal exteriors on buildings or um, huh. roofing or coatings for glass, paints, varnishes, even places like that. Carpeting was one that's, that's been well known. And actually the carpet industry is moving away from PFAS, but we found evidence that PFAS are sometimes used in hard flooring and in resilient flooring and in hard floor treatment products, different types of roofing. And so did you learn that by looking at manufacturers' product sheets? Did you learn that by testing it? We learned it by looking at product sheets, basically. And hmm. it, the product sheets usually don't say, you know, this roofing contains PFAS. Um, <laughs> it might list a particular chemical that we know is a PFAS. And so we were able to put together those pieces. Uh-huh. Right. So you, so you mentioned coatings and, and roofing and glass. And, you know, I'm hearing water shedding, uh, the ability to shed water is that what it's for that's a big part of it but it's it really varies so in roofing for instance in asphalt roofing uh, there are patents that say that pfas are used in the coatings and the granules to make uh, shingles more reflective for energy efficiency actually so that's one way they're used Uh, they're used to prevent corrosion on metal roofs lots of different functions Hmm. and then if we as a society, when, excuse me, not if, when, as we continue to recognize the perils of this, are there good alternatives to these coatings? That's the question that we don't have the full answer to yet. And we're hoping okay. to enlist the, the architecture and design and building industry to help us figure that out, actually. Mm-hmm. So I'd say that we've done a great job of pulling together the story about the problem um, but we're we're not as well qualified to understand which of the alternatives that are out there are actually functional. You know, we're not building professionals who are out doing this all the time. And so we did identify alternatives where we could find information on it. Mm-hmm. Um, but we're hoping as we as we move forward with this to work with partners in the industry to actually um, find more alternatives and vet them, and then make that information easily accessible to more people. Yeah, here, here. So it occurs to me, as you say, functional, right? There, there are fun, like, so just the, the lowly couch, right? Um, flame retardants are in it, but uh, PFAS is likely on it if you have stain repellency on the uh, fabric. Right. And, and um, when you buy a couch, no one says to you, well, they might say to you very well, like, would you like a stain repellent coating? And you'll say, yes, please. That sounds awesome. You know, I, I have kids and dogs and a human life and I'd like that. But they don't say, would you like a stain repellent coating? You know, these coatings have been um, correlated with negative health outcomes. They don't say that, no. I guess they're not required to say that, apparently. They're not. So, but the, the point being, so my lily couch, I'm sitting on it. It has PFAS on it. How does it get from there to me? Do we know? Is that, does it get to the air and I breathe it in? Is it getting through my skin and it comes in? Yeah, we, we know something. We don't understand it completely. Um, but the PFAS can, residuals of the PFAS that's on your carpet can volatilize. They can get into the air. Uh, from the air, you can breathe them in. But more likely, the biggest route is that they end up on dust. And then we, you know, believe it or not, we ingest a lot of dust, actually, especially kids and pets who spend a lot of their time on the floor. Yeah. So that's probably the biggest way that they're making their way from something like a couch into you. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm actually remembering, is it cats that have a lot of PFAS from grooming themselves? Cats do have a lot of PFAS, yeah. It's been shown in, in multiple studies for things. Is that why their coats are so shining? shiny? <laughs> <laughs> Let's hope not, huh? Yeah, I mean, it is. It's terrible. We, we, love, our, we love our animals. We love our kids. Why would we do this? But that, that's rhetorical. You don't actually need to take a stab at that. So it's in, it's in roofing products. It's in coatings. It's in carpets. It's in flooring products, you said. Sometimes, yes. Some flooring products have, have advertised this uh, as a thing to make flooring stain resistant. Like hard floors. Okay. Res- resilient floors. Yeah. And then mm-hmm. waxes, polishes for hard floors. Mm-hmm. Another big area where we found uses are in sealers for hard surfaces like concrete, tile, grout. And those grout sealers are one where there's actually a lot of evidence of acute health harm from the use of these PFAS-containing products. So um, 10 years ago or so, there was a product that got recalled because dozens or 100, of pe- 100 people went to the hospital from breathing these grout sealer sprays. Is it just because those particular chemicals were aerosolized or is there, are there varying um, degrees of, of harmful PFAS? Certainly uh, there's variation in how different PFAS in the health effects that they can cause. And in this particular case, uh, the aerosol spray didn't just contain PFAS, it contained other things, but a couple of studies looked at it and pinpointed that, that PFAS ingredients that was in the aerosol as the thing that was causing this, these respiratory problems. Got it. Mm. So that, that's what acute means. Like there's a, there's a correlation, a known correlation there. Well, what I mean by acute is uh, the exposure happened and then you got sick right away. So mm-hmm. DIYers or, or professionals were using this product, um, started coughing and had to go to the hospital as opposed to someone who was drinking low levels of it and they're drinking water for 10 years and then years and years down the line, they developed a, a health effect. That's what we would call a chronic health effect. Yeah, acute exposures from grout sealers, that's, that's probably easier to deal with than these, than these general ubiquitous exposures. And I think that's why you're doing this report is just to, education is so important. We're going to make sure people know where it is. So let's do a brief run through of the, the basic categories, if you don't mind, just kind of be a little organized with that. Okay. Roofing. Yes, we found evidence of PFAS use in several types of roofing from asphalt shingles, like I mentioned earlier to coatings for metal roofing, to uh, tensile roofs. Like, I don't know if you've ever seen the, the Denver airport or the Minnesota yeah. Metro Dome, these big sail-like structures. Those are actually Teflon, essentially. They're, they're fluoropolymer PFAS. Huh. We also found that in um, flat roofs, weatherproofing membranes can sometimes contain a PFAS layer. Right. Wow. So, you know, it just as a building science nerd, it's, it's fascinating because controlling moisture entry into buildings, you know, making sure buildings shed water effectively is very important for durability. It's very important for the indoor microbiome and health. And yet how you do it is actually very important. You need to be very thoughtful and judicious. Yeah. So coatings is the next category. You had roofings and then coatings. And coatings are on all kinds of things, right? Sure. It's a little bit hard to slice and dice what a coating is, but for us, we talked about metal coatings, paints, wood varnishes, and coatings on plastic things like uh, like bathtubs, for instance. Mm-hmm. And PFAS are used there as as binders in paints, um, chemicals that hold the paint together, help it impregnate the substrate, help it uh, level as a leveling agent, all kinds of uses. Hmm, okay. Well, I'm going to just dig in briefly there with, with curious mode. So it's, it's this chemical, it's this carbon ring with fluorines on it, and it holds very tightly to itself. And I understand that helps me kind of get a sense like it would repel other substances. It wouldn't bond with them. But you just implied that it helps paint bond to substrates. How does that work? PFAS are good at lowering the surface tension of a mixture. And adjusting surface tension is a lot of uh, what makes something like paint flow flow well hmm. and, and turn out level. That's the same reason that they're used in firefighting foam. Because if you have an oil spill and you spray a PFAS foam on top of it, the firefighting foam will spread out on top, smother the, the flames, essentially. Ah, yeah, yeah. That makes sense, too. So next category was flooring. 
after coatings was flooring. That's right. Maybe one of the most well-known uses of, of PFAS used to be in carpets. They were, they were used uh, in carpets that came from the factory as well as in carpet treatment products like, like Scotchgard. Mm-hmm. Fortunately, that, that use is on its way out, I'd say. The major manufacturers are, are not using PFAS anymore. And states like California and Washington are moving in the direction of regulating those aftermarket carpet treatment products with PFAS. Uh, in addition to carpets, though, it looks like PFAS are sometimes used in uh, resilient flooring products as mm. stain treatments. And they're also really commonly used in floor wax and, and other floor treatment products. Huh. And that one is, is particularly concerning because floor wax and you know, floor cleaners get washed down the drain. And so if you, for instance, are in, in a rural place and you're on a septic system, that floor, floor wax can get into groundwater pretty quickly. There are a couple examples of schools in rural areas where uh, they had a private well and a septic system and the PFAS made it from the floor wax into that well. Wow. Yeah, the most yeah. frequent place I can think of that's has waxed floors is a school. You know, right. Kids just being exposed to these things all the time. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, and that this brings up an adjacent but huge topic. The, I mean, it's kind of like a national crisis of PFAS in drinking water. It is. Maybe you could just touch on that since we're we're right there. Yeah, millions of people have PFAS in their drinking water at levels that that scientists think is of concern right. for health effects. Right. Um, and the more studies that are done, the more measurements that are done, the the bigger that number gets. Yeah, right, the more people we know are affected, and this is—it's awful. It's—it's it's horrible that um, so many people are being exposed to this. But the the bright side is that it has raised the profile of this issue with policymakers, and so it's—it's it's gotten the attention of, of Congress, of of regulators, in a way that that hasn't happened with another group of chemicals for a long time. And so there is some momentum in in coming up with solutions, at least for providing clean drinking water and cleaning up the messes that are out there already. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I don't think you could overstate the importance of that in the sense that helping people come to grips with something such that they'll take action is profound. And unfortunately, it seems to take like big, profound problems to wake people up and go, oh, yeah, this is not this is not a little thing. That's right. And I, my understanding is also that, you know, you mentioned millions of people. As we continue to evaluate the health risks, we understand that lower and lower thresholds of exposure actually cause uh, similar outcomes. So it's like, oh, if it's not 50 parts per million, but it's five parts per million, now it's like tens of millions of people. Exactly. Hundreds of millions of people, perhaps. But you're right. The level, the the drinking water health guidelines that are out there for, you know, for the handful of chemicals that have been studied really well have dropped by a factor of more than 100 over the past 10 or 20 years. Uh, yeah. Part of that has to do with just being able to measure this stuff better but a lot of it has to do with more and more health studies coming in showing that um, that PFAS are toxic at lower and lower levels. All right. Beyond flooring, we have sealants and adhesives. Right. So the big one in sealants are those products that I talked about earlier, sealants for hard surfaces. This could be anything from a stone countertop to the concrete stairs in a parking garage to your patio. They're used to, to repel oil to repel stains, to make it less likely that ice and snow will stick to a concrete sidewalk. Mm-hmm. Various various uses. Wow. Other other things that we put in that sealants category are things like O-rings. Uh, some oh, caulk right. contains PFAS. Some adhesives as well. Man. Okay. And then glass is it, it's is it part of the glass manufacturer or is it applied afterward? The best we can tell is that. Um, the PFAS are marketed to, to manufacturers of glass products. So it's not in the manufacture of the glass itself, but maybe in the manufacture of the glass shower door. Someone, a, a company might apply this as a treatment to that shower door. Yeah, so in all these applications, right? So it goes on as, as some sort of benefit creating additional ingredient. Does it stay there? Like, like, let's say I have a shower door that's 30 years old. Is there still PFAS on it or has most of it gone into the environment? Who knows? For the shower door, I really don't know. There's mm. there's just not been much study of this. For textiles, right. we have some inkling that it doesn't stay very long. So there there are 
are a bunch of anecdotal stories from from everyone like carpet manufacturers to furniture companies to to universities and other institutions that we've talked to who say that the the stain protective effect of PFAS seemed to go away after six months or a year. And, and that's why janitors will reapply Scotchgard every few months to some of these types of textiles. So it's not staying on the product. That means it's going somewhere else. Um, it could be into dust and, and we could be exposed that way. Interesting. So that coating, that Scotchgard coating, that's a PFAS is, yeah. coating. Yeah. And actually, Let's interject some good news here before we go on with the list of where it is. Carpets, right? Like, yeah, it's Home Depot, Lowe's. Yeah, tell us about that. Tell us about this. Right, the, the carpet industry uh, has undergone a huge change in just a few years, and it's it's really a positive story and a win for public health. You know, not not long ago, the industry had switched from an old type of PFAS to a new type of PFAS that they thought was was better and was not going to be toxic. It turned out that wasn't really the case. There just hadn't been so much study on the new type of PFAS. Interesting. Right. Well, it's, it's a familiar story, isn't it? Yeah. It's, uh-huh. it's just like the flame retardant story. And the BPA and the water BPA bottles. to BPS. Yeah, mm-hmm. you name it. Um, but fortunately, carpet manufacturers came to understand the need to, to avoid this entire class of PFAS. And, and there were alternatives out there. Um, and I think... The story I've heard is that they gave up some performance as far as soil resistance, but there were great solutions for stain resistance. And, and so that's what they did. And they, they've moved away from PFAS. And now even big retailers like Home, Home Depot and Lowe's are not selling any more carpet with PFAS. It's great. Yeah, that's, that is so awesome. And it, what, I'm just interested in the chicken and egg there. Did the manufacturers tip their hand that were willing to stop doing these and and or that the retailers say, look, you please stop doing these or we'll stop carrying it? Or how did that work? Yeah, there are a lot of factors going on. But my take is that big customers, big commercial customers from the commercial contract side had demand for PFAS-free carpeting. And we, we know some of those um, big customers and we had encouraged them to reach out to carpet companies and, and convey the fact that they had a demand for, for PFAS-free carpet. Because that demand was there on the commercial side, the companies figured out that they could make this and that, you know, it, it would work. It was, it was okay. And eventually that led to them being able to offer it to the residential market. And then it wasn't so hard for Home Depot and Lowe's to say, okay, well, we won't sell PFAS carpet anymore. Wow. What a, what a huge success story, right? And just out of curiosity, do you have a sense of how many different PFAS manufacturers there are? Excuse me. No, no. That's a bigger question. How many... Uh, carpet manufacturers were there in this decision? One or two or dozens and dozens? The carpet industry is highly concentrated, actually, when you, when you nice. compare it to other industries. So there are, there are three players that make up the majority of the market and a handful of smaller companies. And so all three of those big players have have done a big change as well as some of the smaller companies. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's interesting. It, there are times where that can be helpful to consolidate power. I mean, yeah. In China, where they have very strong leadership, they can make important decisions on behalf of their population. Like, oh, we're going to go to cultured meat, um, period. We're going to stop raising pigs. Uh, and it's done. Yeah. Well, it's, it's true. And that's, you know, that's one of the reasons that we like working with companies, because companies can make things change faster than government can often. If, you, if the right mm-hmm. person decides that it's a good idea to make a big change, then that change can happen quickly. And that has huge ripple effects. Huge. Yeah. And it remains on a different podcast. We were talking with uh, Ken Gehring, who makes dehumidifiers. And he was working with a manufacturer of air conditioning equipment. It's on the show, but it was a given one. And it turns out if you use an air conditioner and a dehumidifier, they work perfectly together. They work so well together to keep your air both cool and dry. And this Guy went to his bosses and said, this is fantastic. We should recommend that we put dehumidifiers with our products. And his boss came back at him and said, look, we can't admit any weakness in our product until all our competitors agree that the same weakness exists with their products. So boom, you know, immobility, no change, you know. And so, yeah, I'm glad to hear about the success story. And uh, you haven't said exactly how GP. SI, Green Science, I said it backwards, GSPI was involved. Uh, I assume you guys were involved because you just said we reached out to the carpet 
manufacturers. Is that literally someone at your firm? We were involved in this in this process somewhat. I'm just being modest there, but we we have a group called the Material Buyers Club, which are large institutional mm-hmm. purchasers mm-hmm. who are interested in in green and healthy buildings, and um, they include you know organizations like healthcare organizations, universities, big big tech companies, and we worked with them to, um, like I said, convey demand for PFAS free carpeting to the manufacturers and we actually hosted a couple of symposia here in berkeley where we had representatives from those manufacturers come and, and talk about the pfas issue and just try and brainstorm in a in, in a non-critical setting about what could be done about this right yeah there's this idea that you need to be careful with the decisions you make as a company because you, you're going to get backlash from the public we often come across this when we're talking to companies about the need to to phase out a problematic chemistry, you know, whether it's carpet or rain jackets or, or whatever, there's the fear from the legal folks that if you say, Hey, we're using this great new safer chemistry now and customers are going to say, well, what were you, what were you using before? I don't like that. (laughs) Right. And so it's something that, um, that companies have to get past if they're going to move forward. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, it's like you, you need to, really be clear to them, like, this is an issue that is going to blow up and you can get ahead of it and be seen as one of the, uh, you know, change agents, or you can get behind it and potentially be blown up with it. Yeah, that's right. Mm-hmm. And it's not just environmental NGOs who are having an influence, right? I mean, governments, state governments are moving to regulate PFAS and carpet. All kinds of companies who manufactured things with PFAS are getting sued by water districts downstream for, you know, having PFAS in their water. There are a lot of different drivers towards moving to different chemistries. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Fascinating. Fabrics. That's the big one. So that's carpets and upholstery. Upholstery, window treatments, um, ah. wall, wall fabrics. There's there oh. more fabrics in the building than I understood. Wow. And again, the, the PFAS coating has like a limited lifetime of effectiveness. That's sort of well known on the, those fabrics. Anecdotally, yes. If PFAS are not always being used for stain resistance, in some cases there are products that use it for um, for light filtering or for hmm. you know keep, keeping dust off of things. Hmm. There, are, there are a lot of different uses. Wow. One thing that we came across that that we were concerned about was the use of PFAS for awnings, outdoor textiles that get hit by rain. And then can that rain pick up PFAS from those outdoor textiles and, and take it into the sewer and into the river? Yeah. Yeah. You mentioned earlier um, how it's used in all sorts of products for all sorts of uh, different outcomes. And a lot of the outcomes I think are are convenience, right? For stain repellency. A lot of them are visual too. It'll, it won't stain. Maybe the awning, as you just mentioned, will stay cleaner longer. And it just gets me thinking that if we, you know, as we improve PFAS awareness broadly throughout the industry, throughout our society, generally, that people might start to look at, oh, look at that awning. It's been there 10 years and it's perfectly clean. Yikes. Obviously, you know, some crazy chemicals are on that one. And it might be like, look at that good old dirty awning, you know. Might turn it around. <laughs> well, in a way, that's why we wrote the report not to encourage dirty awnings, but just yeah. to to get it out there that these chemicals are pervasive, and to get people thinking and asking the question: Are are these functions always necessary? Mm-hmm. And I have a hunch that in some cases they're not. You know, some of these functions can be done without, and that's the easiest way. To, to get yeah. rid of this harmful chemo- chemistry, you don't have to find an alternative. You can just do without, perhaps. Right, 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 right. And and not just, you know, are these necessary, but are they necessary and worth it, right, compared yeah, to your right. health? That's right. Right. Like, and who's going to say, oh, that's okay, you can, you can mess with my endocrine system, but I really need my carpet to be uh, stain resistant. I don't know. I don't, I can't imagine many people consciously making that trade-off. No. Or my French fries, you know, have to be, you know, my French fry wrapper or my burger wrapper. Like, I don't care, right? Put it on something else. 
<laughs> yeah. Yeah, I'm a styrofoam. Please you bring up, up a, a good point in that most people don't consciously make that trade-off, but how many people are really conscious of it? You know, if if we are in the building industry at the, you know, sort of the applied science layer of it, and we're really just learning about it, you know, in the last few years, how many average homeowners who just want to build a home are in the same boat, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Most people are not conscious of it. And I don't think we can expect them to be. Uh, mm-hmm. The best solution would be for manufacturers to make products that are safe by design in the first place. And and you all in the building industry that are in the middle have a lot of power to uh, to pull the manufacturers along, I'd say. Yeah. Yeah, Absolutely. I think, I think we should go meta, and I'm going to just read the rest of the list, Tom, unless there's something you really want to highlight. So wires and cables, tape, timber-derived products. Actually, what, where is it in a timber-derived product? This is one that we're, we're a little unsure about, but there are studies that found PFAS in particle board, MDF, uh, wood fiber insulation. And so the thought is that the PFAS is getting there through the adhesive that's in those materials. Wow. Oh, I have no idea. And solar panels, again, I guess it's some sort of coating to keep them clean. Yeah, coatings. And, and also PFAS are used a lot in electronics for electronic properties. So that's probably why they're in solar panels. Ah, uh, yeah. And then the last two are artificial turf. Mm-hmm. That's a surprise. Our thinking about why they're in artificial turf is that PFAS are added to the plastic extrusion machines to make the, the fibers ah, come out of the extruders more nicely. Nonstick, yeah, yeah, and again, we have artificial turf in playgrounds uh, with kids on All their hands the and place. knees. Yeah, the, the amount of artificial turf. I mean, it's it's a big growth industry. Yeah, it's outside, rain's falling on it, kids are on it. Yeah, it's so easy to think or recognize how it gets into our groundwater so pervasively. And then the last thing we have here is seismic damping systems. Yes, this is something we have a lot here in the Bay Area. These are big. Teflon bearings that help keep buildings safe during earthquakes, things like uh, large buildings, hospitals, bridges, they, they sit on Teflon bearings, apparently. Wow. And they, I guess uh, they, please. I, I'm not arguing that we shouldn't have earthquake safe buildings or structures, certainly. I'm just <laughs> pointing out there is Teflon there. Yeah. Yeah. And Miguel, just a minute ago, you were alluding to, or just saying straight up that there's so many chemicals, right? There's so, there's so much to think about. I mean, just with PFAS and all the exposures as people, as professionals, like we make it our business to learn about and know about these things. And over time you go from like very strong clarity about, Oh my gosh, this chemical's bad. And then you find out, Oh no, this chemical is also very bad. And this chemical. And if you keep going through that, you end up in this spot where it's just like overwhelm and it kind of immobilizes action as opposed to enables action. Yeah, so I think it's so important to tell these stories and tell tell the stories about where it is in in the building products. So building products are specified by architects a lot, by interior designers a lot. So I would imagine speaking with those groups, which is one of the things you're doing today. Thank you. So speaking to those groups and telling them, here's what we suggest you do instead. Um, that seems like a, a tough statement to make. What do you suggest they do instead? Or, or what what's the... You know, what do they do? What can they do? Well, the way I see it, a lot of architects are, are, and interior designers are already screening the chemicals in products. Yes. This is, this is happening. It's happening big time. And to me, it's just a matter of getting these chemicals on those lists that are being screened for so that the same thing can happen with PFAS. Mm-hmm. It's happening with other things. Do we know how chemicals get on the lists to be screened for and at what level? I think it really depends on, on the instance you're talking about, for instance. Mm-hmm. I mean, we, we mm-hmm. comment on standards when they come up for renewal, like standards like the cradle-to-cradle certification standard or the, the ILFI uh, red list. We provide input on those types of things to, to nudge them in the, the right direction. Right. And then, I, you know, individual architecture practices have, have their own lists, some of them. And so outreach to them is important. Right, right. And I imagine you're working with groups like HBN. We are working with, with groups like HBN and, and HPDC, especially to, to work on that transparency piece, because that's what underlies the ability to do anything about this, is knowing what's in the product in the first place. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
that's big news, right? So you guys listening, we're making progress on this. Let's, uh, let's know that this is a big deal. You are. You are making big progress, and it's impressive. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's, that's the reason we chose to focus on building materials is because there is momentum in, in optimizing this. Right, right. Is there anything that is happening with getting manufacturers to disclose when PFAS is on there or having a little label like PFAS-free or something? The PFAS free label is something a lot of a lot of people ask me about, but it's logistically it's pretty challenging because you have to even figure out what's the right test method to do that. Okay. And so I don't I don't know anything about that. But hmm. one thing that we're doing is coming up with lists of chemicals to correspond to each of our six classes. So right now, yeah. up until now, it's just been a big picture idea. You know, try and avoid flame retardants, PFAS, antimicrobials. But we actually did a big project over a year to to come up with lists of thousands of chemicals to assign to each of those. And we've, uh, we're loading them into HBN's Pharos database so that people can, can screen ingredients in, in their products against them there. We're, we're working to get them into HPDs so that if uh, a PFAS chemical shows up on an HPD, it can be flagged for people who want to look at that. Right, right. We're trying to attach this work into the infrastructure that's already there for, for doing this material health stuff. Mm-hmm. That's so powerful. That's so huge. Thank you. So, you know, building science-wise, you know, there's these principles for healthy indoor environments, which is minimize the indoor emissions of pollutants, right? And, and so that means screening products that are going to be indoors, frankly, anywhere in the building enclosure, um, <laughs> thinking about drinking water, right? So it's not just minimize indoor emissions of pollutants. It's just literally minimize the emissions of these pollutants into the environment because they will get into your drinking water. That's a really important point. Um, not all PFAS are going to volatilize from a product and end up in the air in the dust and be ingested that way. But the production of the PFAS at the factory where it's made, uh, that site in North Carolina that we talked about earlier, mm-hmm. um, you can draw a line from any of these building products that we've got in our report to a site like that that's, that's putting out pollution into someone's backyard, right, and, and getting in someone's drinking water. And so that's the reason to, to be avoiding these. Yeah, yeah. So thinking about it as a system of systems, right, PFAS exposure is the, like, the downstream effect. It just seems to me that we just mentioned this manufacturer in North Carolina. Well, somebody is selling them this product. And um, so I guess somebody's making the product. And then somebody upstream from them is selling them the raw ingredients for these products. And like, how, at what point do we say, oh, at this point, you combine the chemicals and now it's a serious pollutant and a health exposure for our society? I mean, these are rhetorical questions, but it is a system of systems. So, you know, and there are some big chemical companies, right? You know, like. There's a lot, a lot invested in the infrastructure to make these chemicals and a lot of money is made off of making them. Yeah, Mm -hmm. it's a, Mm -hmm. it's a big ship to change the direction of. Yeah, for sure. But, but it can happen by, you know, examples like the carpet industry and, mm-hmm. and the work of architects and designers who specify things without PFAS. Yeah. Sending that demand up the supply chain. Exactly. I mean, we talk about stranded assets all the time in the uh, energy sector where you have this coal-fired power plant and all the investment or, you know, the, the stranded assets that are going to come as the meat industry transitions and we don't need stockyards. And so we're going to have stranded chemical manufacturing assets. That, that's my hope. Um, and that they get repurposed. <laughs> yeah, hopefully they can get repurposed, repurposed to making chemicals that are just safer from the beginning. Truly helpful, yeah. So last place I wanted to take it was talking about the six classes method. So powerful. Um, you know, in, in this idea of don't replace this bad chemical with its you know, sibling that is equally as bad, but avoid the whole chemical class. And I know here in the United States, there's a lot of people pushing for that, but it is currently not um, the norm. We evaluate chemical safety on a, on a you know, one-at-a-time basis instead of a class basis. In the EU, is it more done on a, on a chemical class basis, or is it also one-at-a-time? 
Traditionally, it's been one at a time, but it is moving in a big way to the, the chemical class approach for some of the reasons that I mentioned earlier, that just the time required to assess all of the chemicals in the way that's happened before, it's just, uh, it's just infeasible. And so the big news out of Europe on PFAS is that four or five countries have announced that they're proposing a restriction of the entire class of PFAS, all these thousands of them, um, in all what they call unnecessary or non-essential uses. And that's, that's essentially saying you cannot use PFAS for a, a wide array of products. And yeah. they hope to do this within a few years. That's great. Yeah, it's, it's a really a huge thing. And a lot remains to be seen about how they actually implement this and how fast it will happen. But just the, the fact that they're thinking about this, this big idea in this way and they're, they're moving there, it's inspiring. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So is it the case that like GSPI is active in Europe or is it the case that this is like, this is like a, an idea whose time has come? It's an idea whose time has come. It's an, it's an idea that we've been advocating for for a long time now and we're thrilled to see it being picked up. And we're uh, hoping that it gets picked up more in the U.S. as well. And, and having European policymakers move there uh, makes it easier to make the case for it here mm-hmm. eventually. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah, because they have big chemical manufacturers there. In fact, they have many of these same big chemical manufacturers. Yeah, there. absolutely. And and so any work that goes on over there to to figure out better alternatives for some of these uses can be put to use here in the U.S. and around the world. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right, if we figure out ways to make PFAS-free products. Right, right. Okay, so I think we're going to try to bring this thing for a landing here. It's been fascinating. Um, frankly, I feel a little sobered. I feel a little, this is not a light subject for me, certainly not not for any of us, I guess. So these per and polyfluoroalkyl substances, uh, there's thousands of them, and they are uh, all around us all the time. They are called by, as you said, credible sources, forever chemicals. And there are better alternatives, and we got success stories of you know win wins. And one of the big things that's happening, and one of the reasons we're talking now, is that you guys have a big report coming out: building a better world report, eliminating unnecessary PFAS in building materials. Is there any final thought you have on that subject? Yeah, I'm glad you think it's sobering, but I think you should also come away optimistic. At least I, I hope you will. We are awesome. What we're hoping to do put this report out there and crowdsource figuring out what the solutions are. I mean, first of all, we hope that anyone who knows about uses of PFAS in the the built environment that we missed will let us know. Secondly, and and more important, we're hoping to put this report out there and crowdsource with building industry stakeholders what the answers are. What are the alternatives that are already out there that are non-PFAS and that work well? We want to get that information. We want to make it publicly available so that everyone can start shifting the market to those better alternatives. Yeah. Here, here. Well said. Yeah, let's do it. Yeah. You guys listening, thank you for listening. Tom, thank you for your time today. Thank you. Yeah, really awesome. Talk to you guys next time. Bye.